Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Hey, friends. Nina here. To mark six years of the Already Gone podcast, I'm releasing some bonus content for you to enjoy. This is a story that has fascinated me since I first learned of it, the disappearance of Texas attorney David Glenn Lewis. When you're a kid, everything is a mystery, from the color of the sky to how birds fly to the enigma of our parents. Nothing seems to make sense. And we believe, as we get older, that mysteries disappear as we understand what makes the sky blue and learn the mechanics of flight and find out that our parents, well, they're just people. But that isn't always true, is it? Mysteries take on a new form, something that doesn't become so easily solvable. And one of those mysteries is the disappearance of David Glenn Lewis. David was born in Borger, Texas on December 11, 1953. In 1979, he graduated from Texas Tech University with a doctor of jurisprudence. In other words, he became a lawyer. David practiced law for several years and then was elected as a court of law judge in Moore County, Texas, where he served from 1986 through 1990. After losing his bid for re-election, he began practicing law again, this time in Amarillo, Texas. He lived in nearby Dumas with his wife, Karen, and their nine-year-old daughter, Lauren. He was also a deeply religious man, active in his church as well as in several charitable organizations. David also taught night school at the nearby Amarillo College. At the end of January 1993, the Dallas Cowboys and the Buffalo Bills were playing in Super Bowl twenty-seven. David was looking forward to watching the game as he was a big Cowboys fan. Karen and Lauren spent Super Bowl weekend flying to Dallas to do some shopping. When Karen and Lauren returned home late at night on January 31, 1993, things were quiet in the house. The lights and the TV had been left on, as well as the VCR, which recorded the Super Bowl. David's wedding ring and watch were on the kitchen counter. The clothes dryer was on, and two freshly made sandwiches were in the refrigerator, but David? was nowhere to be found. At first, there was no cause for concern. There was no sign of a struggle or any evidence that violence took place. Karen thought maybe David had gone to work or gone to watch the game somewhere else. It wasn't until the next morning, when her husband still wasn't home, that Karen became concerned. When she learned that he'd missed two appointments that day, Karen decided to reach out to the Amarillo Police Department and report her husband as a missing person. After interviewing friends and family, this is what Amarillo police put together as the timeline of events leading up to David's disappearance. On Thursday, January 28th, Karen and Lauren left for Dallas. David left his job at the Buckner, Lara, and Swindell law firm earlier that day, around lunchtime. He left early saying that he wasn't feeling his best. That afternoon, his credit card was used to purchase gas. He taught his government class at Amarillo College that evening. The class ended around 10 p.m. 
On January 29th, a friend from his church reported seeing David rushing through the Southwest Airlines terminal at the Amarillo Airport. They noticed that David was in a hurry and not carrying any luggage. On Saturday, January 30th, David was said to have been seen, but it's not clear who saw him. And this would be the last confirmed sighting. Someone, again, we're not clear who, deposited $5,000 into David and Karen's joint bank account. And while no one laid eyes on him that day, neighbors reported seeing his red Ford Explorer parked outside of his home. On Super Bowl Sunday, there were no confirmed sightings of David. It's January 31st, but his VCR was set up to record the football game, and someone would have to do that manually, as the machine did not have a timer function. It's estimated that the recording started at 5.15, presumably by David. On February 1st, David was reported missing by his wife since he didn't come home, and he missed two appointments. An investigation was initiated by Amarillo police. On February 2nd, police found David's red Ford Explorer in front of the Potter County Courts building in downtown Amarillo. They found his house and car keys under the floor mat. His checkbooks, credit cards, and driver's license were also located inside the vehicle. And while I find this very strange, apparently it's normal behavior for David. And yes, leaving valuables inside of your vehicle is a terrible idea. Don't do that. Upon further investigation, police discovered that two plane tickets were purchased under the name David Lewis about the same time David went missing. The first was purchased on January 31st and went from Dallas to Amarillo. The second was from February 1st, and that was from Los Angeles to Dallas with a layover in Amarillo. Now, in 1993, things were a little more relaxed at airports and you didn't need to show ID to buy a ticket or to board a plane. So it's unclear if it was David that purchased the tickets or if these tickets were even used. Meanwhile, David's family was certain about one thing. He would not leave them voluntarily. They knew that he was too devoted to his wife and child to leave them. According to Karen, David had received death threats during his time as a judge and had recently told her his life was in danger but he wouldn't give her any details. David was scheduled to fly to Dallas the next week for a deposition in a $3 million conflict of interest lawsuit that had been brought against his former law firm, Ham, Irwin, Graham, and Cox, by a wealthy client. However, when he was interviewed, David's lawyer stated he didn't think the deposition was anything that would bring harm to David or would put him at risk. Something that I think is important to mention is that when David went missing, his files concerning this deposition also went missing. After 11 months of searching for David and investigating with no further developments, the Amarillo Special Crimes Unit discontinued their inquiry into David's disappearance. They could find no evidence of foul play, and they concluded David purchased the two airplane tickets willingly. They declared David Lewis a voluntary missing. Now, there were a couple of sightings of David after he went missing. These sightings are unconfirmed, but they add to the overall mystery of David going missing. On February 1st, a sheriff's deputy saw a man resembling David outside the Potter County Courts building taking photos of a red Ford Explorer. 
Later that same day, a cab driver drove someone matching David's description from a hotel to the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. The driver said the man seemed nervous and paid in cash, pulling out a big wad of $100 bills. But after these two sightings, which again were unconfirmed, the leads dried up. More than a decade passed, 11 long years, and the case got colder and colder. Then, a break happened in the most unlikely of places. In 2003, the Seattle Post-Intelligencer printed an investigative series called Without a Trace. This series documented the shortcomings of police investigations into adult disappearances, both inside and outside the state. The story investigated the NCIC, or the National Crime Information Center, the missing persons data bank. What it found were serious problems with the data bank police were using in order to try and solve these disappearances. The end result was that many of these cases would go cold and sit on shelves unsolved. Washington State Police Detective Patrick Dutter was enamored with the article. It gave him an idea. He would do an extensive Google search of the John and Jane Doe's that they never identified in the area to see if he could come up with anything. Within a week, Detective Dutter accomplished what the data banks had been unable to do. He came up with a list of possible victims. One of the John Doe's from Washington looked a lot like a missing person out of Texas, David Glenn Lewis. But Detective Dutter wasn't fully convinced. David wore distinctive eyeglasses, while the John Doe did not. After further investigating, Dutter found the evidence list of the John Doe and discovered that the John Doe did have eyeglasses in his pocket. And these glasses looked a lot like the ones worn by David Lewis. After contacting the Amarillo Police Department and sending a tissue sample that had been preserved since 1993, as well as John Doe's shoes, a DNA sample was then compared with DNA taken from David's mom. And the DNA was a match. David Glenn Lewis was no longer missing. But how? What had happened to David Glenn Lewis? It seems that he'd been killed in a hit-and-run accident on a desolate two-lane highway close to Moxie, Washington. This is about 10 miles away from the Yakima Airport. He died on February 1st, 1993, at 10.24 p.m. Listeners, that's the day after he went missing from Texas. He had traveled 1,600 miles and was killed 29 hours after he was thought to have been home recording the Super Bowl. It was reported that David was walking down the center line of the highway in pitch-black night. One driver, concerned about his safety, turned their vehicle to warn oncoming drivers that there was a man on the road, but the driver was too late. They returned to find David's body on the pavement, deceased. A Chevy Camaro was seen leaving the area, but the identity of the car and the driver that hit David has never been discovered. When they performed an autopsy, they learned that there were no drugs and no alcohol in David's system. Besides his behavior, walking down the middle of a highway in pitch darkness, another strange thing about David were the clothes he was wearing. He was dressed in military fatigues and work boots clothing that his wife, Karen, said he did not own. David was not wearing his glasses, although they were found in his pocket. Listeners, he desperately needed those glasses in order to see. 
His family was perplexed by the events leading to his death. They said he had no ties to Washington State or to Yakima in particular. The trip would have taken 23 hours by car or several hours by air. There are no direct flights to Yakima, so it's unclear how he got to the area in the short amount of time that he did. His family was concerned that he was kidnapped or perhaps running from a threat, but neither of those explained the change of clothes or why he was walking up the middle of the road not wearing his prescription lenses. When his identity was discovered, David was returned to Texas for a proper burial. Part of his obituary read, Your love and devotion have been missed so very much. You touched so many lives while you were here. How sad that many of your dreams were left unfulfilled. We know that God is using you for His almighty work. So listeners, why did David end up so far from home? Why was he wearing clothes that clearly weren't his? How did he get them? Why wasn't he wearing his glasses? This is a frustrating case, and it's one we will probably never have answers to. And I don't normally theorize about cases, but I'm guessing David had a head injury of some sort, or perhaps a medical crisis that led to an acute mental status change. Why this compelled him to abandon his home and the food he'd prepared and flee the state, we will likely never know. I hope you enjoyed this bonus mini-episode of Already Gone. As a missing persons advocate, this case is one that has stuck with me over the years. I'm glad his family was able to bring him home, but it's frustrating that they continue to live without answers or explanations for what happened to their loved one. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Be safe.